Our scripture this morning comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Hear God's word to us. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, hello and good morning, everyone. My name is Tyler. Uh, and I am one of the pastors here, and today we have a big task ahead of us, so I am so excited to be here. If you've been with us since January, you know we've been making our way verse by verse through the book of Acts. We've been taking a closer look at the church in its earliest days, seeing how Jesus' first followers enacted his teachings, putting them into practice. And a few weeks ago, we launched the current sub-series that we're in, entitled uh, The Beauty of Weakness, kind of our Lent series through Acts. So we launched that gosh, maybe three, four weeks ago now, and I told you that day um, that another sermon was coming, so I got to start the series. I said, hey, another sermon's coming when we're going to dive more deeply into the economic practices of the first century, and I, I said that it was right around the corner, but I said at the time that Gabe would be the one uh, to give that message, and the joke is on me, church, because today that message is here, and uh, Gabe is not standing up here, is he? So this morning, I guess you'll have to settle for me, but hear me when I say I am very glad that I wound up being the one preaching this message because spending extended time studying this text and spending extended time studying the first century economic practices that inform this text, that are behind and underneath this text, uh, it has been very, very good for my soul. And I believe that what we study today, and I'm going to be intentional saying study, because if you know me, you know this, I have a whole lot of feelings, um, and I also like to think, and today is a little more of a thinker than a feeler. I'm sorry, right? We need a balance of both. Uh, but what we spend studying today, I, I trust that what we'll learn this morning when we dive into this text has something that will, uh, has the power to change the way we think and perceive God, or think about and perceive God and change the way we think about and perceive our neighbors. So I'm ready uh, to dive in this morning and to get us thinking about the topic that we're gonna be addressing, the topic of uh, economics broadly, right, of using whatever resources we have, how we spend, share, save, invest them, uh, to get us thinking about that kind of activity, those kind of practices. Uh, I wanna start by suggesting there are fundamentally three ways of engaging economically in the world. So at the heart, there are three fundamental ways of engaging economically in the world, three ways of engaging with money, of engaging with wealth, of engaging with whatever it is that we have, uh, three ways that we think about using those resources, and they are, in my view, um, taking, trading, and giving. So at the, at the, just kind of the base level, the fundamental level when it comes to, hey, here's something I have and I'm thinking about how to use it. There's three ways we engage economically in the world. We've got kind of taking, trading, and giving. And I'd like to add that we all uh, engage, we all participate in each of these practices from time to time. What do I mean by that? Well, we've probably all taken something simply because we wanted it. 
right? Maybe it's like a, a toy when you're a kid, right? That's mine, that's mine, that's mine. Or if it's, I don't know, maybe the last piece of cake as an adult, you know, like that's definitely my slice. You know, we've all taken something simply because we wanted it. And in one sense, we've all kind of taken something. That's one economic activity. Here's a resource, here's something of value, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it. We've likely to also all traded something, right? We've given something that we have a, a value to someone else and they've given us something else valuable in return. So it's, you know, maybe, hey, can we trade shifts at work? You know, I don't wanna work that night because I've got plans the next morning. So we've maybe traded shifts or we've traded baseball cards perhaps, right? You know, I've got this Ken Griffey Jr. for that, whatever. Uh, should stop talking about things I don't know anything about. Uh, but we've all tra you can, uh, tried to use a sports metaphor. Uh, so we've traded, right? You know, we've traded. So there's taking. We've all engaged in taking. There's trading. We've engaged in trading. We've traded something we have a value for something someone else has a value. And then, of course, I hope we've all given something, right? Given maybe a birthday present, a baby shower present. We've said, hey, I was thinking of you, and, and I wanted to give this to you. So taking, trading, and giving, we've each engaged each of these practices. And if you spend any time around church, you know that Jesus has something to say about taking, right? That's probably clear. And if you spend any time around church, you probably have an idea that Jesus had something to say about giving. But this morning, as we prepare to study this text in Acts, I'd like to suggest that Jesus had something to say about trading as well. This morning, as we walk through the end of Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of Acts chapter 5, I believe we'll see that Jesus' first followers adjusted their opinions they adjusted their behavior, not only about giving and taking, right? Those things certainly change in light of who Jesus was, but they also adjusted their opinions and behaviors related to trading as a result of their time with Jesus and their conviction that Jesus is Lord. And I think that understanding that they adjusted their attitude toward training or towards trading specifically is really vital for us to grasp if we're going to get the message that I think Jesus wants to share with us each this morning. And so, Again, I said this would be an intellectual sermon. Here's the roadmap of where we're going, friends. Before we dive into the text today, we're going to have a bit of a history lesson, all right? And I promise to make it as exciting as possible. Uh, this, this is a sermon in three parts. There's a history lesson, a biblical lesson, and a personal lesson. I promise, I mean, did a, like a history degree in college. I'm going to do my best on the history lesson. It'll be really, really engaging. Maybe not Shark Week level, but hopefully like history's mysteries if we're talking the history channel. So history lesson biblical lesson, then personal lesson before we go. But first, so we can understand what the text says, a little bit of a history lesson. Um, and I promise, uh, again, to be as fascinating as I can be. <clears throat> so in the first century, access to resources and positions of influence and power, social services, social goods, those things were all made available through an economic system that we've come to call patronage. Okay, it's patronage, really key concept. And, and here's how the system worked. In the patronage system, a person with resources, with power, with the ability to give someone else something that they might need, uh, was called a patron. So the patrons were the powerful, the patrons were the wealthy, the patrons were the people that had something. And then there were those without resources, without power, those who needed access toward maybe a, you know, a social good or a loan or something like this, and they were known as the client. So the clients needed help. And so a client would come to a patron and a client would say, you know, oh, great and powerful, you know, so-and-so, you're the most you know, beautiful, kindest, smartest person I've ever met. You look, you know, forever 21, being in your presence is such a gift, you know. So like you come, you kind of flatter your patron a little bit, and then you say, hey, turn your favor on me. All right, so great and powerful so-and-so, everyone knows you're the best, 
We absolutely love you. Will you turn your favor on me? Will you give me the, the loan that I need to pay off these many debts? Will you give me, you know, the ability to use a little plot of your land to farm food for my family? Will you give me maybe a position in our civic government, you know, so that I can have a little bit of a better job in the world? Would you give something to me, patron? And in return, I pledge you my loyalty. I pledge you my allegiance. I promise to speak well of you to everyone I meet. You know, give me what I ask and I'll owe you. You know, give me this big favor, give me this big thing that I need, and I'll owe you, I'll be indebted to you. My labor, my talents, my time, my expertise, they'll be yours to call upon when you ask. You see, patronage, this system, it was built on relational debts. It operates by creating these like relationships of obligations between two people, the patron and the client. And the client, by asking for the patron's help, becomes obligated now to speak well of the patron, to proclaim the patron's fame, to tell everyone, hey, this person is the best person that there is. You should all want to be patron to them. You should want to pledge them your resources and time because they're, they're wonderful, they're worth it, they're mighty. And the Roman philosopher Seneca said that patronage, the practice of exchanging these personal favors, he said this was the chief bond of human society. Seneca said these types of relationships of the haves getting kind of pledges from the have-nots, of the powerful getting, uh, you know, kind of favors and things owed to them from the people without any power. He said this, this is the glue that holds society together. Seneca said, economically speaking, trading favors is how the world works best. And this is so important because any first century reader of the Acts narrative, any person who was alive when Jesus was on the earth or when Luke was writing this document, anyone who was around in the Roman Empire in 40 AD would have believed that too. They would have believed that trading favors is how the world works best. They would have believed that trading favors, giving gifts through relationships of obligation, trading access to power and wealth for you know, the promise of someone owing you something and making your name great, they would have said, hey, that's the way the world works best. It would have been what they were taught their entire lives. It would have been immediately obvious to them. And again, it's not too difficult to understand why. This is a world before, you know, visas out there offering credit cards in the mail. This is a world where, you know, a line of credit could be difficult to get. It's a world of, honestly, more limited resources. There's not the entrepreneurial activity we see today. It's a really like a land-based society, and there's only so much land to go around. So there really are, like, very wealthy land owners and everyone else. And so, in some sense, the patronage system makes sense. I can leverage my labor. I can leverage my voice. I can say, hey, I'll, I'll, be, I'll give this to you. I'll be indebted in you because you're one of the few people that have anything. So patronage, it's not all bad. It did open doors even as it created debts. You know, it allowed someone that knew how to build a solid table or bake tasty bread or do a nice painting. It allowed them to get kind of access to what they needed in society. But, and this is really important, patronage has its limits. Patronage has its shortcomings. There's a fundamental problem with the system. And the problem is this. If your world is built around trading favors, what happens when you have nothing to trade? And what happens if you've fallen out of favor? If access to goods and resources and assistance in your society is a dependent on someone thinking you have the ability to offer them something in return, what happens if you've got nothing to give or you've got little to offer? To put it in other terms, what happens if you're injured? What happens if you're wounded, if you're disabled, if you're bankrupt? What happens if you've made some mistakes in the past and now your reputation is tarnished? 
Uh, what happens if you're not the right gender or the right color or you didn't come from the right family? What, what happens then in a patronage system? You see, the problem with the patronage system is that it had no true way to help the truly down and out. There was no mechanism within patronage, no pattern or pre-prescribed practice within this system to extend aid or to extend help to someone who could not pay you back. The concept just did not exist. And this is difficult for us to grasp as people that now live in such a different world where, honestly, quite frankly, the Christian thing has happened and now generosity is lauded in our society. But you've got to get your mind back before this. People living in a patronage system would not have thought the same way we do about helping someone in need. It was obvious to them, it was taught to them that you only extend favor to someone who could pay you back. And it wasn't just like some oops in the system that made it that way. I mean, this is what was instructed to them as a good thing. Let me try to drive this point home a little bit. Cicero, the great Roman philosopher once said, good gifts badly placed are badly given, by which he meant do not waste your generosity on people who don't deserve it. Cicero said that a patron was responsible for like scrutinizing a person that would come to them for ask, to ask for help and say, hey, are you, are you worthy of my assistance? Maybe you're in a tough spot now, but one day will you be able to pay me back? Are you someone I want to take a risk on? And Cicero said, that's a good thing. You should scrutinize. You should be very like just withholding and only give your, your generosity, your help to someone that you think one day could pay you back. And Cicero's advice, it's echoed in all the great first century philosophers and thinkers. You find it in, again, Seneca, Ben Sirah, the other famous first century thinkers. And it's echoed again in the writings of this Greek rhetorician named Isocrates, who said, bestow your favors on the good, right? So if you have help to give, hey, give it to good people, because a good treasure is in store for the gratitude that's laid up in the heart of the honest man. So he says, hey, Give your favors only to good people because you'll get something in return. You're going to get the gratitude if you give your favor to a good person. They're going to give you their gratitude in return. But he continues saying, if you benefit bad men, you will have the same reward as those who feed stray dogs. For these dogs, they snarl alike at those who give them food and a passing stranger, right? You've seen that dog. You give them food. They bite the hand that feeds them, right? They snarl alike at those who give them food and the passing stranger. And just so, or in the same way, base men people that he's saying, people that aren't worthy of your generosity, these basemen, they're going to wrong alike those who help them and those who harm them. Isocrates, like all great thinkers of the time, insisted that any patron ought to scrutinize the recipient of their giving, right? Any wise giver ought to assess if the person asking them for help deserves it. Like all the prevailing teachers of the time, all the other great thinkers of the first century, he said, hey, no opportunity to trade or to get something in return should be wasted, and therefore your help shouldn't be given to people that can't pay you back. You should only be merciful, kind, and generous towards someone who could someday give you something you need in return. And again, church, this was the unquestioned assumption of any thinking person in the first century. It's hard for us to imagine. Our world has changed so much, and I think change for the better because of faithful Christian witness like we'll learn. Our world has changed, but get your mind back there. You live in a world that only thinks that it's worthy of giving aid or extending advice to, or extending help to someone who could pay you back. This was unquestioned in the first century world, even by people of faith and religion, which is why when another first century teacher emerged, a teacher who challenged the prevailing cultural authorities and a teacher who challenged the prevailing religious authorities, lots of folks took notice because this teacher said that generosity should be dispensed more freely. 
He said that his followers ought to give freely without thought of repayment. He said, hey, when you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and in this way, you will be repaid for what you've done. He said, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they are not able to pay you back. And God will repay you at the resurrection of the just. Jesus, in contrast to Cicero, in contrast to Seneca, in contrast to Isocrates and all the other prevailing thinkers of his age, taught that trading favors is not the path to blessing. He said his followers should give freely even to those who might not ever be able to pay them back, which is why, church, as we transition from kind of the history lesson to the biblical lesson part now, which is why I think Luke is able to write in the book of Acts that all the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that all, uh, that all that there were, there were no needy persons among them, and from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. And they brought money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Jesus said his followers shouldn't get so caught up in the system of trading favors that dominated the cultural landscape of their time. He insisted instead that those who follow him ought to give freely without thought of repayment. And here in Acts, we see as Jesus' first followers gather together in his name, we see that teaching enacted and lived out in a bold way. I think that's absolutely remarkable. They take Jesus' teaching here to heart. To put it another way, the church here in Acts 4 embodies what Jesus taught, I think, in Luke 14 and in so many other places, right, where he said, hey, bless those who can't pay you back. So what exactly did the economic practices of the first century church look like? How did it play out kind of in the knit and gritty? Well, that's where we'll go next. Uh, this is kind of the, again, the Bible lesson portion of our sermon, and we're just going to walk verse by verse, uh, starting here in Acts 4.32, to get a sense of what their economic practices actually looked like. So first, uh, I think Luke outlines that Jesus' first followers experienced remarkable unity. Uh, he says in the beginning of verse 32, the entire group of those, they lived as if they had one heart and mind. They were one in heart and mind. They felt great unity with each other. They began, as Luke says elsewhere, to feel like they were actually a family that Jesus had drawn together. And so your needs are my needs and my needs are your needs, right? They're knit together. They're experiencing great unity. And they're realizing as this unity grows that, gosh, the things that I have the things that I own, the possessions that I have, maybe I shouldn't just try to leverage them for my benefit so that I can earn a favor. Maybe perhaps, and I would say this idea started to take off in the first century church, maybe actually that's what's mine is really yours in a sense. That what I have I can use for your benefit. That what gifts have been given to me and what things I've earned I, I can leverage, I can use, I can steward in a way that blesses you. Now notice, I say that the church picked up this idea, hey, what's mine is yours, what's mine is yours. Notice, that's different than the church community coming to people and saying, hey, what's yours is everyone's. And that's a very different economic system. It's a system that folks have tried and it didn't work out too well. The church didn't coerce anyone to take part in this kind of a practice of, of sharing resources and giving. There wasn't coercion at play. 
And notice too when Paul's, or Paul, Paul writes a lot of the New Testament, but not this. When Luke says that his, uh, the people in Acts no longer claim their possessions as their own or, or no longer uh, yeah, thought of just themselves first, he's not saying that they no longer believed in private property or that they weren't acting with economic shrewdness or wisdom. This isn't Luke's way of saying that Jesus' followers just kind of gave up all their wealth to join some kind of commune. In fact, Luke isn't suggesting that at all, and I would say he's suggesting something far more radical and more demanding. Luke says that Jesus' first followers began to think of their possessions as something that had the power to help those, even those who might not be able to pay them back. Luke says Jesus' first followers switched from asking, how can, how can I, what I have help me, to asking, how can what I have help my community? Right? They switched from this trading system. How can what I have help me to get favors, to get applause, to get acclaim, to how can what I have help my community? And how did this switch happen? Well, I think Luke tells us in verse 33. He says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Luke says, hey, the secret to this community is that they kept reminding themselves of the fact that their leader, their hero, their Jesus, their friend who they had been with and who they saw killed had actually rose again from the dead. And he said that just emboldened them. They, were, they couldn't stop talking about what they had seen. This was a miraculous thing that changed everything. And so with that boldness, they kept saying, hey, Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Lord. He's worthy to be praised. And he taught some things about economics that we're actually going to put into practice. We're going to be more bold because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so they were, they were emboldened by the news of Jesus' resurrection. And the text says the Spirit was on them. They had this great grace among them. And so the Spirit's helping them as they're trying to navigate what this should look like. How should we be generous? Which takes us to verse 34, I think. So the Spirit's on them. They're proclaiming Jesus' teaching. They're willing to take bold steps. Well, what practically did their generosity look like? Well, let's see here in verse 34. Luke writes... That from time to time, or to put it another way, as the need arose, those who had land or had houses sold them and brought the money to the apostles so that it could be distributed within the community to those who had need. So again, Luke says the earliest followers of Jesus, they didn't do away with the concept of private property. Right? These people had land, they had money, they had stuff to give, and they didn't do away with the concept of ownership. Again, they did something more radical and more demanding. They decided in a world that was dominated by a patronage system where, hey, you trade me and I get this back and this is how it works, they decided that they would use what they have and leverage it for the good of the community as the need arose, even to people who couldn't pay them back. They decided that what they had was theirs to give freely for the good of others. Now notice too, they weren't saying that everyone in their community needed to have the same stuff. This wasn't kind of an economic, you know, let's equal everyone else around stuff. We all just need to have the same stuff. I think that misses the point as well because the point is they weren't about having it all. It's not about, oh, you need to have this because I have that. It was all about giving, all about generosity, all about we've received this grace in Christ. We can't stop proclaiming that he rose and this is changing our economic practices right now. Simply put, they realized in the early church that resources are best used to bless those without resources. And they were doing something, again, that was brand new in the world. We have been so shaped by the practices that they introduced. It's hard to imagine a world where it's just giving good things wasn't something that was politely applauded. They were doing something brand new in the world. They were living out Jesus's teaching. But then something happens. 
this couple shows up, kind of a, a conniving little couple. They step into the mix, and there's this supernatural intervention that takes place against them. And that's what happens here in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Hear this. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, right? So people are selling property. They're giving the proceeds. They also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. So Luke says, as all this is happening, as people are kind of realizing, oh, some of what I have I could actually give to people that don't have and can't pay me back, that this is a good thing, as this new idea is taking root within this community, another couple steps on the scene and they say, oh, this is kind of cool, you know, we like the community meals here, we like hanging out here, oh, this generosity thing, this seems to be something they do, let's sell some of our property as well, but let's keep some of it back but we're going to show up at the thing and tell people, hey, this is what we made it, right? So it's like we're going to sell this house for like $100,000. we are going to keep fifty. we are going to bring fifty. say, hey, we sold it for really cheap. We're going to tell them that's all the money we made, right? So they're being deceptive here. With his wife's knowledge, they said, we're going to keep some back, but we're going to go and present it to the church and tell them this is all the money we made. Look, we're just as generous as you are. And so they show up and they lay the money at the apostles' feet. And the text says that Peter, the leader in the early church, he immediately recognizes that something deceitful is happening here. I think like the Spirit just gave him a little bit of insight into this moment. And Peter says, when Ananias shows up, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter says, Ananias, you were able to sell your land the whole time. No one's coerced you into selling it. You were able to do that freely. And no one coerced you to bring the money here. While the land was your own, you could do whatever you want with it. And after you sold it, you could have done whatever you wanted with the money. But you've chosen here to come and be deceitful. And you're trying, it seems, to like get the applause, to get the favor of the crowd, to have people say, oh, you're really nice and generous people, without being truly generous. You're lying in the midst of this community. And Peter says, gosh, the problem is that you're lying to this community, and you're not just really lying to this community, you're actually lying to God. And if you read the rest of chapter 5, at least to verse 11, you see that there's harsh judgment against both Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. What happens is that Ananias shows up first and they have this interaction and then the text says that Ananias just kind of buckles over, he dies, and they sort of drag him out of the way and then Sapphira shows up and this is, you know, kind of pre-Snapchat, no one posted anything about that dramatic death, right? So she has no idea what's going on. So she shows up, they kind of give her a chance to say, hey, what's going on? Is this really all the money you made? She keeps up the lie and the text says she gets kind of the same firm, bold judgment from the Lord, and she dies as well and is sort of dragged out of the place. So again, you can read it there through verse 11. Bible's really interesting. Uh, that's a great part of it. <laughs> we just, we've got, we're on a clock, right? Uh, but, and this is kind of helping us. We're wrapping up the Bible lesson now and getting ready to move into the personal lesson. So here's what we've got from the text today. We've got radical generosity in an early church. We have some people that come in and try to pollute it. So I was thinking this week as we move into this personal lesson, it's like, Lord, what does this text mean? And I kept thinking about this bold judgment against Ananias and Sapphira. And it's like, God, why such bold judgment? You know, is it the, is it the, the deception? I'm sure there's other people that lied in the early church, Lord, but is it just that their deception was so bold? Is it the greed that they had? Is it this and that? And to be honest, 
there's like a million different articles, essays out there from great biblical scholars that, that debate the purpose. It seems like it's something that the, the Lord's trying to preserve his church in early critical days, and so he needs to clean house real quickly. But again, if you want to read other things, I can, I can point you to all kinds of essays, articles. You could th think that for yourself. But as I'm dwelling on this harsh punishment for Ananias and Sapphira, I started to think again about the precise nature of the bad thing they were doing in the church. And I realized this, that Ananias and Sapphira, by trying to sell their land but lie about the money but bring it to the church, but do that, they were trying to reintroduce the trading system into the church. They were attempting to bring that system where people with resources leveraged it for the applause and the acclaim of those around them. They were trying to bring that back into the church. They were trying to leverage something that they had sold for personal favor, for the esteem of the church leaders so that they could get a, a thumbs up from their fellow church folks. They wanted people to say, gosh, how good are those people? They wanted people to notice their generosity and to acclaim it. They had the motivations of the patronage system still deeply in their hearts, honor, allegiance, reputation, my own fame and acclaim, and they were taking a small step to sneak that system back into Jesus' church. And as I thought about that this week, I kept thinking, gosh, I mean, don't we do that too from time to time? I mean, I know I do. It can be real easy to look at relationships with other people, even in the church, and say, gosh, what kind, of, what kind of benefit can I get from this connection? You know, what can I do to help them that'll make them owe me? Or what kind of good thing have I done this week that I need everyone to know so that they can, you know, think that I'm great or I'm special or I'm someone worthy of following or I'm someone worthy of, you know, applauding and acclaiming, right? I mean, so easily these kind of trading, I do good things to trade it for reputation, they sneak right back into the church, and what's worse is that I don't just try to bring trading back into my relationships with other people. I think I try to sneak it into my relationship with God as well. From time to time, I can look at God as like the great negotiator in the sky, like the ultimate patron, the one with all the wealth and all the resources and all the power. And so I see God up there and I'm like, hey, God, you know, like I'll make this big sacrifice. Oh, great, holy God, I'm going to make this big sacrifice. I'm going to do this tough thing. I'm going to spend you know, more of my money, more of my time, more of my effort engaged in this task. But man, will, will you like, will you do this? Will you just give me that? Will you just open up this door? Could I just have, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it might be? I try to bend God's will toward my own, and I try to do it through trading or negotiating or, or bargaining. I want to treat God like I'm some client in the patronage system, like I'm one who has allegiance or devotion or something to offer that can make him give me what I want. But the fact is, church, and this hit me this week, God doesn't need anything we have. And God can walk away from any proposition that we make to him. I mean, what could we possibly give God? This is what the Apostle Paul, and this one is actually Paul, this is what the Apostle Paul says later in the book of Acts when he writes, hey, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, right? What can we give to the God who made the whole world? Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
God has everything. In church, I realized this week, it's like, I have nothing to offer to trade or bargain him. I'm, if it were the patronage system, I am one of those helpless clients that has nothing to offer in return, that has nothing I can bargain with, nothing I can leverage, nothing I can do to earn the favor of this great patron in the sky. But the lesson God reminded me of this week is I took a deep dive into studying these first century economic practices and thinking about this text. And it's the lesson I think God wants to share with all of us this morning. It's this, it's that God is a giver. God is a giver. He's not a taker and he's not a trader. He's a giver. He's a giver so generous as to give his only son to give humanity what we could not obtain for ourselves, right? God giving his own life so that we could have abundant life, eternal life with him. God is a giver. He's generous. He gives us daily breath. He gives us big joys and small joys. He gives us people to walk beside us when hard times come. God is a giver, and I forget that. And when I'm discouraged, I see God as a taker. And when I'm desperate, I want to treat God like he's a negotiator, and I'm going to make my best case to try to get what I want from God. But God is a giver. He's a giver. He's a giver. And he wants his church to resemble him, and that's what Jesus taught his first followers, and that's why there's this great generosity in the early church in the book of Acts. It's because God is a giver. Now, you should know that this week, um, I just had a lot of stuff kind of creep up in my personal life. It was one of those weeks where it's like a little harder to get out of bed in the morning and you're just sort of sad for no reason. You're like, my sad music isn't even playing. Um, and there's just a lot that's going on in life, you know, and so I'm trying to, you know, write this, do other church work, and I, uh, I'm just drowning in a little bit of it all, right, as this week is unfolding. And so as a result of all that, I reached out to one of my friends, Kate. Now, you don't know Kate. This is Kate. Uh, Kate works at an adoption agency in Indianapolis. We went to college together. Very, very dear friend of mine. She's an excellent writer. So you don't know Kate, but if you've been around here for a while, uh, you have a lot to thank Kate for because Kate reads all of my sermons in their rough draft form. So I write on Google Docs, so it's like a shared thing, and Kate is generous enough, kind enough. I mean, we're good friends. We know plenty of stories about each other enough, right? So she owes me. No, that's bad. It's patronage. No. Uh, but she... So Kate will read the rough drafts of all of my sermons. So she knew what's going on in my mind. She knows what kind of I'm writing, where I am. You know, she's seen the quotes from Seneca and stuff as they're laid out there. Um, and I'm texting back and forth and telling her about how heavy this week has been and we're, we're chatting through some things. And Kate sent me this message. She wrote, it's not lost on me that after a week of being down, you're preaching a sermon on generosity. And she said, here's what's true. Even when you feel like you have nothing to bring, nothing to offer, God shows up and shows off. He pays your full debt. He works on your behalf. He shows up for you. And this is the part that got me. He isn't just a generous God. He defines generosity. And she is exactly right. Our self-giving God, right, giving his own son for us, defines generosity. He is a giver, and he wants his people to be like him. He wants his church to reflect his generosity. And so this week, I've got just a few goals for myself. Again, I said we'd end in a personal lesson. I'm going to share some of mine, but I think now with all the content we've covered, again, heady message, thanks for sticking with me, and all the content we've covered, 
You owe it to yourself to leave with a personal message for yourself. What's God saying to you right now? Here's some things he's been saying to me. First and most importantly, I want to remember this next week what God has done, uh, what God has given, how, how generous God has been, how fundamentally God has been a giver to me, that God is not a taker, that God is not a traitor, that God has given to me so much. And I want to become better on relying on his generosity towards me instead of trying to trade and bargain and do all these other kind of crazy things that I try to do instead. I want to do better at, again, in Kate's words, in trusting that fundamentally God is giving to me. He wants me to draw on his power. He wants me to rely on his grace. He wants me to rely on his church that he's given, that I just need to get that deeper and deeper into my mind, that God is a giver, God is a giver, God is a giver. That's, gosh, it's so far from my heart. I need that to drive down in and sink in deeper. So that's one goal this week. It's like, Lord, help me remember that you're a giver. And I'm trusting that as that happens, that as I get a deeper sense of God's generosity, that, that ultimately that will grow a heart of generosity within me. That I'll become one of those people that ask, uh, hey, you know, what can I do to help? Right, what, can, what can I do to help, you know? In God, I think, asked that question of himself and realized, oh, what can I do to help? I can send my own son, and he solved humanity's problems. And so if that's what he did, and it cost him kind of his whole life, you know, I feel like I could ask that question and give some things to people who need stuff. You know, I could help people move. I could leverage my money better, my schedule better, my, my time. I could be more attentive to needs around me. I couldn't just ignore, like, you know, sometimes you hear, like, the seed of a place you can help, but you're like, I don't want to hear the rest of that conversation. You know, it's just like, what can I do to help God grow a heart of generosity in me? Because, again, God is fundamentally a giver, and he wants his church to resemble that. And I know that we all have different resources in this room, different amounts of time, different amounts of money, different amounts of experience or expertise, or, you know, some of us are able enough to help folks move and other of us would love to bring like the snacks when the move is done, you know, or whatever it might be. Like we've got different resources in this room. But the question I think that comes from this text, once we realize that God is a giver is, gosh, with what I have, what can I do to help? How can I help? And so again, those two things, those are my goals this week. And in light of all we've studied, I think you owe it to yourself to leave with a personal message too, a personal lesson to take away. What is God saying to you through this text? How might you get a deeper grasp that he's a generous God who has so much he wants to give you? And how might you in return be a more generous person as a result? I think that's what Luke wanted us to get from this text. And it's been a message that's made all the difference to me. So church, would you join me in prayer as we ask for God's help? to form us into the people he wants us to be. Oh, Lord, you are so, so, so generous. You define generosity. You really do. You created a whole world for us. You give us our daily breath. You sent your son for us. Gosh, the list, Lord, it goes on and on and on. You are the definition of generosity. And we as your people, Lord, we want to resemble that. And help us to be generous. Help us not to be takers or traitors, Lord. Help us to be people that give freely, even to folks that we know can't pay us back, Lord. Help us to be people that recognize that everything we have is a gift from you and so we can steward it and share it well, Lord. doesn't mean that we are supposed to be unwise or reckless, but God, let us be truly generous. Let our generous be motivated by your great grace to us. And God, help us reflect you so well into a world that very much like the first century world is still built around trading favors. God, in some ways, not much has changed. But help your church to be different. 
Help us to show your radical love and generosity. We need your help in it, so we ask for it now in your powerful name. Amen.